Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It's always a pleasure to be with you um, and to come together in our worship of the great God and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are going to be looking today at Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, uh, actually going into chapter 2. Uh, verse 4. So I invite you to turn there in your Bibles or to click on a phone or to have that text before you. But as you are turning there, um, you may not realize it, but many of you were driving by faith in the work of Gladys West. Do any of y'all know who Gladys West is? Well, believe it or not, a lot of your life depends on her. She was born to a family of sharecroppers in Virginia in 1930. And though she grew up incredibly poor, she was incredibly smart. And she excelled in school. She was the valedictorian of her high school. And because of that, she won a scholarship, a full scholarship to go to college where she studied math. She excelled in college, then decided she wanted to be a teacher. She went and taught math for a while, but she went back to school and got her PhD in mathematics. And after she got her PhD, she began to do research at the Naval Surface Warfare Center. And what she did is she studied the globe. She studied our earth. And you may know that our earth is not a full circle. It's not a perfect sphere, but it's an ellipsoid because it's got a squished nature to the circle. So that it's, it's not this exact perfect sphere, which made it really hard for the Navy to precisely know where people were. They couldn't count on the curvature of the earth. And so what she had to do is to develop an array of calculations that took into account the weirdness of our globe. And because of her work, GPS is possible, which is why many of you were driving by faith in her because the underpinning of GPS is all built on her calculations, her study of this world. And through her work, many of us drive because of her work, or as I was in Colorado, hiking, trusting in her work that it would lead me where I wanted to go and bring me back safely. Uh, Many businesses and satellites and so much of our economy is all built on her work. Now, the reason I bring this up is because you may not know what she did, but you live in a sense benefiting from what she has discovered of this world. And what the author of Hebrews is doing in this passage that we're going to look at today is he's wanting you to understand that Jesus and his work is something that can enable you to live by faith with confidence. Just as you can trust your GPS, generally, to get you to where you need to go. You can trust Jesus in what he says and how he leads you to get you to where you need to go. Today, what the passage that we're looking at wants us to see is the way that we can live by faith in what Jesus has said. But now let's turn our attention to God's word to hear from God himself as he speaks to us through his scripture. 
Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son? Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. But of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. It is good and right for us to pause and ask for his help to understand it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we do not have to understand these things alone, out of our own strength, but that you give them to us, as this passage reminds us, with your spirit, so that you yourself can teach us. And we pray now that we would hear from you through your word, by your spirit, and that through these things we might see and know the glory of Christ more. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now this passage is deep. There is a lot going on in this passage, as you can see just even by the appearance and all the quotations that are in it. And it would be easy for me to want to unpack all of this, and I can't. But what I want to do is I want to give you a brief glimpse into the theme of this chapter. Because what Jesus is revealed to be in this chapter is the ultimate revelation of God. The best revelation of God. The final revelation of God. And he does it by drawing out three aspects of Jesus that demonstrate why there can be no greater way to know God 
than Jesus. And we're going to look at that. But first, I want to just pause and consider how remarkable it is that we have a God who wants us to know him. That we have a God who is thinking, how can I bring myself into the minds and hearts of my people in a way that they can understand me and know me? You know, this is something that we can easily skip past and assume because it's so common of an understanding of God in our culture. But this is not the way that most people thought God's work. Back in the ancient Near East, the the way that you would relate to a god is is you would have to discover them. In the time of the mystery religions, they were mystery religions because God was mysterious. And you would have to go through all these rites and passages and initiations and acts and sacrifices in order to just find out something like the name, the real name of your god. And gods were were aloof and distant. And so you had to pursue them to get some aspect of of who they were, some knowledge of their name. And you would try to do that so that you could then have power. If you knew the name of your God, you could call on that God. If you knew something about that God that gave you a window into the world in a way that it worked. To know that God would give you power, but to know that God demanded you to pursue them. But the author of Hebrews says something powerful in verse 1. They say, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke. At many times and in many ways, God spoke. Don't miss the beauty of that. The nature of the God of the Bible, the nature of God of Christianity, the nature of the true God of this universe is one who wants to speak to you, who wants you to know him, who wants to reveal himself to you. He doesn't expect you to do all the work to go to him, to figure him out, but he expects himself to come to you and help you to understand him. One time we were having dinner as a family and I was starting to talk about something, but then I kind of got caught up in a thought. And so I I went silent. And I was silent for a good bit because I was kind of like lost in thinking about something. And then one of my children, not Sam, but one of my children said, Dad, I want to know your inner thoughts. What were they wanting? They were wanting to know what was inside me, in my heart. Why? Because they, they loved me. They were wanting to know me. And that's what love is like, right? Love wants to know and understand what, what is going on inside of something. But, but think about the beauty of this passage that the author of Hebrews flips it around. But cause God loves us. He doesn't wait for us like that child said, Dad, tell me about yourself. But he initiates. He says, here I am. Come and know me. The revelation of God is a demonstration of his love and his grace that he wants us to get into the inner thoughts of who he is. God initiates in us knowing him. And the whole of the Old Testament demonstrates this. The Bible begins with God speaking forth creation, a a speak act that creates and demonstrates who he is. As Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Why? Because they are speaking out his character, his nature. 
He came to Adam and he spoke to Adam about life and death and sin and the world and, and even marriage and all the aspects teaching Adam about himself in this world. He goes to Noah and he speaks to Noah about, about the coming destruction so he can redeem the world, so he can redeem Noah. He goes to Abram and he calls Abram out of a lack of knowledge of him and reveals himself to him and calls him to a new life and a new land. He goes to Moses and he appears in a burning bush to speak to him of the exodus, the rescue of his people and his love and care for his people. He goes to David and says, I want this kingdom that I am giving you to last eternally. And so I am going to build through you an eternal throne. He goes to Jeremiah and he says to Jeremiah, I'm going to make a new covenant, a new promise where my people will no longer wonder who this God is, but they will no longer have to go to their neighbor and say, can you tell me about them? But that everyone from the least to the greatest will know me. That's the nature of God that throughout the Bible, he says, I want my people to know me. God is a God who speaks, who brings out who he is to the world. And it's important to get that that is grace. That's him moving towards you in love. God wants all his people to know him. And he wants them to know him completely. And so what the author of Hebrews says is, is because of that, he does something more than just what we see in the Old Testament. He does something greater than just what we see in the Old Testament, where he spoke through the prophets, but now he speaks through his son. You know, it's interesting that we actually uh, confess today in Catechism Question 24 about how Jesus is a prophet. And if you remember what you just said, it said he's a prophet because he reveals to us by his word and spirit the will of God for our salvation. And that's what prophets were in the Old Testament. They were these people that would reveal to people what God's will was. And the first prophet was Moses. And Moses was this prophet who had to reveal uh, what God's desire was to his people in part because the people didn't want to hear directly from God. We actually see this in Exodus 20. After God speaks out the Ten Commandments himself, the people call Moses to them and they say, listen, we don't want that again. It was too terrifying to hear God speak to us directly. We'll listen to you, but we don't want to listen to God. It's not that they didn't want to hear from God. But God's glory was so tremendously in its holiness and its power, so tremendously fearful that they said, we can't take that in. And so God begins to speak to his people through these prophets, intermediators, a step-down converter, if you will, that, that takes the message of God but allows it to be communicated in a way that the people can hear and not tremble in fear. And that's what he did throughout the Old Testament. But it wasn't good enough for God. And so in the past times, he had spoken through the prophets. But in verse 2, the author says this, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. Here he's speaking, of course, of Jesus Christ the eternal Son of God. But I want to reflect on why Jesus is greater than the prophets, that Jesus is the greatest 
revelation of God. And the author of Hebrews helps us understand why with those three phrases that he uses there in verse 2. In verse 2, he speaks about Jesus as the Son, Jesus as the heir, and then Jesus as the creator. And those three things he then uses through the rest of this chapter to demonstrate why the revelation we have through Jesus is the greatest, the ultimate revelation that we can have through God. And so first, he talks about Jesus being the Son. Jesus is the eternal Son of God. And when we hear that phrase, Son of God, a lot of us think more about genealogy. When we think about son, we think about relationships, a father to a son, and that certainly is true. But back in the day, to be a son was more than just DNA. It was more than just relationship. To be a son spoke to your destiny, what you would be, what you would become. Back in the day, they didn't have guidance counselors to help you pick your career. Your career was what your parents did. Think about Jesus. What was he? He was the son of a carpenter. Now, when they called Jesus the son of the carpenter, they were saying, well, that means he's the carpenter too. He was the carpenter's son because he inherited that business and became a carpenter. He didn't go to a, a, a guidance counselor and fill out a test and say, it looks like he may be good with their hands. Why don't you try woodworking? To be the son meant that you would become like the father. You would inherit the family business. You would carry on the legacy of the family, that, that whatever your father did, that is what you would do. And, and when the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus as the son in this passage, he's wanting you to have that kind of idea. That because Jesus is the son, he is bringing into the world the father's legacy bringing into the world the Father's business, bringing into the world the Father's actions. He's, he's giving into the world all of who the Father is in what Jesus does. This is what the author of Hebrews does, in part by beginning this contrast with angels that kind of runs through the passage. Now, just as a side point, you may be wondering, why is he contrasting this with angels? It is possible that what it could be is there was a, a common um, mystical thinking about angels in this time among certain Jewish uh, Christians and some Jewish non-Christians that, that angels were a great way, a conduit to kind of get to God, to understand God. We see a glimpse of this in the book of Colossians as the, Paul challenges those who would think that something from an angel is better than Christ. And so it could be that that's what he's getting at. But it could just be the fact that, that angels were these mystical and messengers that communicated God's will. And so he wants to demonstrate why Jesus is better than them. But regardless, he's highlighting through the contrast to angels why Christ is the greatest revelation. And so he says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now, what is he saying in those quotations from the Old Testament? He's saying that, that here's something that Jesus has that no one else can claim. Not even the glorious angels can claim. He has me as a father. 
I will be to him a father. He will be to me a son. And by saying that I will be to him a father, he's saying that, that all of who I am, all of my knowledge, all of my wisdom, all of my uh, gifts and talents, I have transferred to him. Just as Jesus as a carpenter would have learned the trade of carpentry from his earthly father, Joseph. So Jesus, as the eternal son of God, goes into this world fully equipped to live in this world because of what he learned, in a sense, from the Father. And this is why the author of Hebrews can tell us that when we see Jesus, we see an exact imprint of the nature of God. This is what he says in verse 3. He says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. When he says that exact imprint of his nature, it's a reference to a a terminology of how a coin is made from a die. The die, the mold, uh, has the the metal poured into it. And so when you pull that coin out, it reflects exactly the die. And he's saying, in a sense, that's what Jesus is like. That what you see in Jesus is an exact representation of God. But a coin can seem in a way, like a copy. It's not the original. It's not quite as good. But that's why he also says that he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus isn't just a reflection of God. He isn't just kind of an imitation of God. But as the author of Hebrews says, he is the radiance of God. Because he is God. He is God incarnate, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. And what this does for us in in understanding that Jesus is a perfect reflection of the Father, an exact reflection of him in his glory, is it helps us to know that what we hear from Jesus is full. That what we hear in Jesus is real. That what we hear in Jesus is deep. Think about it this way. Have you started using a lot more exclamation points? I have. Especially in texting. I feel awkward sometimes with the amount of exclamation points I put in. But I've learned that if I don't use exclamation points, sometimes people can miss the tone of my text message. And if I don't use exclamation points, I've had people say, are you angry? Because I used a period. But why is that? That, It's because text message is a flat medium. You don't get the fullness of somebody like you would do when you're right there with them. When you see their eyes, when you hear the tone of their voice, when you look at their body language, you get a a fullness of their heart when they are there with you face to face. That's what emojis are trying to do, right? (laughs) Help us to get a little bit better context, fullness for the message. That is what the author wants you to understand Jesus is. It's not a flat medium. He's not just bringing to you the words of God, but as he speaks them, you see him. You hear him. 
You know him in the fullness because he isn't just bringing you truth about God or a message about God, but he himself is the message. He himself is the truth. And so even the manner in which Jesus speaks communicates to us the fullness of God's heart. And the author wants us to understand this about Jesus so that we see in him as the son the fullness of God's heart. In the way that he was kind and compassionate to sinners, welcoming to children, which at that time would be second-class citizens, that he was moving towards the Gentiles, that he was speaking and continuing to speak even to the Pharisees as they were trying to kill him. And all those aspects tell us that this is the fullness of the heart of God. That the fullness of who God is is seen in what Jesus does just as much as what he says. That the fullness of who God is is seen in the way he says things. Mary, Mary. The way that he calls people close to him out of a deep love and tenderness. And that love and tenderness is speaking to us not just about Jesus' character, but about the character of the Father the father that he reflects, the father where he learned that tenderness, where he learned that kindness, where he learned that grace. Because he is the son, we see in him the very heart of God. But we understand that heart of God, not just because of what he says but also because what he has done. And one of the beautiful things about this passage is it speaks about what Jesus has done, where it says in verse 3 that after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty. Here we see a glimpse of how Jesus spoke in his actions and the cross and the way that the cross is him going and making purification for sins, taking onto himself the wrath due for the sins that we have committed so that they would be purified, they would be removed so that his people would not have those sins hanging around them, around their neck like a noose, but would instead have full confidence that they would be embraced and accepted by the Father. But the author brings this out as a reminder to us that this is what Jesus does as the Son. And what that means for us is he's doing in that the work that the Father also would do. He's not doing something different than what the Father would do. He's doing exactly what the Father would do. Sometimes we can easily begin to think that that God and Jesus are at times opposed to each other, that God in his anger is assuaged by Jesus' sacrifice, that, that they're kind of opposed to each other. But what we see on the cross is not Jesus turning an angry heart away. But what we see on the cross is a revelation of the heart of God and what God as the Father longed to see happen. His people cleansed from their sins by his own sacrifice. Jesus 
as the Son on the cross shows us the full heart of God. That He Himself, when He sees our sins, says, I will redeem them at my own cost. God is a God of grace, and Jesus lives that out. The cross is not to tell us that God was placated, but to persuade us to see the nature of him as the God of all grace. The cross doesn't change the heart of God towards us, but reveals it to us in its fullness, a heart of grace upon grace. This is what John says about Jesus, that Jesus is the word become flesh, that comes and speaks to us, full of glory and truth, that in him we might know grace upon grace. How do you think God thinks of you? How do you relate to God? What the author wants you to do is to look at God through that lens of Jesus and allow that to be what shapes how you think God thinks of you. Is he for me? How could he not be more for you if he's given his son for you? Is he punishing me because he's angry with me? How could he do that when he has already punished him for your sake? And he did that so that he would never have to punish you, but that always lovingly guide you in the way you should go. Will he abandon me? Will he leave me? Is he for me? All those questions that we sometimes wonder are answered in the fullness of his love that we see in his son. He's the ultimate revelation of God because he demonstrates us the fullness of God's heart as the son, but he's also the ultimate revelation of God because he is the heir. Again, in verse 2, he says, he was appointed, Jesus the heir of all things. Now, this might seem like redundant. We've already talked about him as being the son. Why would we mention that he's the heir? It's because the author of Hebrews is making a different point here. The heir is the one who kind of brings to the end the legacy of the father, the legacy of the, the person who dies. When you are, die, you will have a will and testament, perhaps. If you don't, you probably should get one. Uh, when you die, you'll have a will and testament, and then it's your last will and testament. And that word last there is to say, hey, nothing else is going to come after this. And in fact, when you write a will, and Dick, you can check me on this, when you write a will, you actually start by saying anything before this, it doesn't count. This is my final word. And so go by this and this only. And by calling Jesus the heir of all things, what the author of Hebrews is doing is saying that nothing is coming after this. Nothing is going to take this away. You know, interestingly, uh, the book of Revelation is written in a way that reflects Greco-Roman wills. Isn't that appropriate that the last book of the Bible would reflect a will? Why? Because again, it's the final book. Don't add to this book. Don't take away from this book. If so, you get curses. That was actually something that was said in wills in Greco-Roman times. Your will is your last act. Nothing gets done after that. Nothing changes what you say there. 
And by calling Jesus the heir of all things, that's what the author of Hebrews is drawing our attention to, that you don't need anything else after Jesus. You don't need any other words after Jesus. You don't need God to do anything more after Jesus. The best has already come. The best has already been said. The best has already been done. You know, this is a challenge at times in our culture when you run into people that are a part of different cults or different other versions of Christianity where they'll say, well, yes, Jesus, he did this, but then the church came along and they messed it up. And you're like, well, yeah, I've seen them mess it up. (laughs) I know that. And then they'll say, but this is what God did. He sent another prophet. He sent another messenger. And that messenger is finally getting us back on track. And you're like, huh, well, we kind of do need to get back on track. Maybe I should check this out. But what does that say about Jesus? He did pretty good, but not quite good enough. And so we need to add to Jesus. We need to supplement it. And the author of Hebrews says, don't buy that. Anyone who comes after and says, you need Jesus, but here's something else you need to know. The author Hebrews says, no, don't trust it. Don't buy that. Because he is the heir of all things. Nothing comes after him. Nothing can surpass him. Nothing can be greater than what he has said and what he has done. As Jesus is the heir, is saying that he is the final and greatest revelation of God. So the author says he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. That sitting down is a reminder of the finished nature of his work. He doesn't have to go and do more because what he did was sufficient and complete. And sitting at the right hand of the majesty speaks to the power and glory that he has. And so he, the author quotes Psalm 45 saying, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There, what that passage is pointing us to is the completed nature of Christ's work, that his throne is forever and ever. Nothing will take him away from his throne. Nothing will supplant his throne. It's complete. It's perfect. And God, he says, anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. There, that's a picture of how Jesus was raised to the eternal throne that was promised David. And God said, this is my eternal king. And only king. Nothing can replace him. Nothing can be greater than him. There's nothing that we need beyond him. And the author wants us to see that. He is the final revelation so that we don't wonder or look, is God going to do something different? So that we don't wonder and look, did God not give us enough? Did God lack something? Did Jesus lack something? The author says, no. He's the perfect and final revelation. You need nothing else. And then he continues and he says, He is the son and the fullness of the revelation. He's the heir of all things. And then lastly, through whom also he created this world. 
Jesus is the creator. And what this does is, again, tells us why Jesus is the ultimate revelation, because he is the one that is above all creation. And this, again, is different than the angels. The angels don't have power over creation. They may have power in creation, but they don't have power over creation. And the author says this about Jesus. You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. It's a remarkable thing that he says. He says that Jesus is so above creation that he laid the foundation, he built it at the beginning, and at the end, he's the one that rolls it up like a garment, that he puts it away when it's worn out. Now, how many of you were worried if the sun was going to come up today? How many of you are worried right now that gravity might stop so you're holding on to your seats? <laughs> we live by faith that creation is just going to continue in a way that we can rely on it and trust in it. And what the author of Hebrews is saying is Jesus is the creator of those things and is so much beyond it that at some point gravity is going to get rolled up. The sun is going to get rolled up. But what will never be rolled up is the one who created those things. And he says it because he wants us to rest in Jesus as the creator and to see that, that even in the midst of creation, which at times seems to be a challenge to us, we can have greater confidence because we know the creator. And just as much as we rely on the creation, we can have greater confidence relying on the creator. He's the creator of all things. And so because of that, there's nothing in this world that can thwart him. Which is why he goes on to say, And to which of my angels has he said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. All the enemies in this world that seem to threaten us, the devil, death, politics, sin, finances, our bodies, ourself, all those enemies cannot thwart Jesus. He is the one who is over all things. So when he says to you, in this world you will have trouble, he knows that there are enemies you will face. But he says, take heart, for I have overcome this world. The author of Hebrews wants you to rest in his voice as one who can actually do that. Because he created it, there's nothing in it that can thwart him. So every word that Jesus has said that is a promise, you can take to the bank. Because there's nothing greater than him, the one who created all things. And the author of Hebrews in this last section in chapter 2 wants us to get the point of what he's trying to tell us. And so he says in verse 1, Therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. It's so easy for us to neglect the gift that we have in the revelation of Jesus. 
And so often in my own heart, I see the way that that I drift away from what I have seen or have heard in Jesus. And so I find myself in places of anxiety, wondering how is God or is God going to care for me through this situation? I find myself trying to, out of my own strength, move forward in this world, out of my own wisdom, live in this world and neglecting what I have in Christ. And what the author of Hebrews is doing in this verse is saying, listen, see how great that Jesus is and the gift of the revelation that he is to you and use it. God gave Jesus to you because he wanted you to have the gift of a full revelation of who he is in his son. Don't neglect it. And the beauty of what the author of Hebrews does is he wants us to see the depth to which God shows how intent he is on knowing you. And so in the last verses of our passage, he says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Do you hear the Trinity in that passage? How he spoke through the Lord, the Son. How God himself bore witness through the signs, the miracles that were done through Jesus and prophets and others and the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. All of who God is is intent on you knowing him. He's given himself fully to you to know what the author of Hebrews says is, don't neglect this. You have a gift to have the creator God, the redeemer God, moving towards you so that you might know him fully, giving you everything that you need to know him and believe him. Don't miss it. Use it. It's his grace. It's his love saying, I want you to know me and inviting you to do just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word and the way that it, with your spirit, reveals to us who you are. And we pray that we would treasure the revelation that we have of you in your word as it speaks to us of your son. We pray this for his namesake. Amen.